Now, we're on lesson number 12. We're coming to the close of our quarterly lesson study on biblical missionaries. And so, if you have your Bibles uh, open, if you have your lesson studies available, have them open as well. We're going to be looking, it's really, this is the second part of a two-part series on the Apostle Paul. We've been looking at biblical missionaries throughout this quarter, and the uh, author has taken, is taking us through two weeks uh, through the ministry experience, the life of the Apostle Paul. And today's lesson is lesson number 12, and it's entitled Mission, Paul, Mission and Message. Uh, last week, we took a look at Paul, uh, or Saul, and who he was, and uh, and, uh, and, and how he became Paul the Apostle. Our memory text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Let's take a look at that. <clears throat> I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before, or ahead rather, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When we think about Paul, we know Paul was uh, continued to push, uh, push himself and the gospel uh, forward. And his goal, he had the goal always before him, and he looked forward to the prize after having achieved that goal. And this was his, uh, his life work and purpose, to keep his eye on the goal, to press forward and, um, and take the gospel to as many people as possible. Could we say that the Apostle Paul did his best? After reading uh, more about Paul, we could say yes. Um, can we say that Paul uh, spread the gospel far? Surely we can, there's no doubt about that. Well, let's, let's just do a little quick review here for us, uh, those who may have missed last week's lesson. Without a doubt, we can suggest that the most prominent figure in the New Testament was Paul. And as was noted last week, he was uh, known as Saul originally, before he had a name change, Saul of Tarsus, and uh, Tarsus is situated there in south-central Turkey today, and it's an important town on the trade route between Assyria, or Syria rather, and Western Asia. It was during Paul's time. And uh, he was born of diaspora Jews, and uh, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And as a Pharisee, he was probably married, however, we really only know of his sister and his nephew. That's recorded in Acts 23, verse 16. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he was educated in Jerusalem, probably after he reached, by the time he reached the age of 12, he was educated in Jerusalem under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, his trade was tent making. He made tents for a living to support himself and his family. He was a Pharisee, and, though, and Pharisees were known, of course, for their strict observance of all the laws of God, whether it be the moral law, whether it be the extended law that uh, was heaped upon the law, which became tradition. Uh, he was, the, the Pharisees were strict observers of the laws of God. However, Saul experienced a tremendous conversion experience. He was on his way to, remember what city? He was on his way to Damascus, and there he met who? Jesus. People often ask the question, how can I have a, a conversion experience? How can, I, how can my life truly be changed? Well, Paul's story tells us how that can come about. It's encountering Jesus Christ. And he met Jesus, and there he was converted. And uh, on his way back to Damascus, he was given through the hands of the church, given his me message and his mission. And, um, and he went forward in proclaiming the gospel. 
The author of the lesson says, Paul developed the Christian concept of salvation history, all centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul's background as a Pharisee uh, helped him to become a successful missionary to both the Jews and also to the Gentiles. With his knowledge of the Old Testament and the scribal expansions of the same, he was able to extract timeless biblical truths from the tightly woven fabric of Jewish custom and tradition. And he did that to make meaningful applications of the truth to everybody who heard his message. He was able to differentiate between what was truth and what was cultural additions of the same. And that made Paul, uh, that, that made Paul, uh, put Paul in a very strategic position to take the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles to help the early church work through some of the transition that the church was going through. One of the major transitions the church worked through was, well, we, we start with the fact that Jew, Jewish converts to Christianity believed that some of the old traditions were to, were to be kept, and they imposed those thoughts on the Gentile converts to Christianity. One of those things was circumcision, and the Jews insisted, some of the Jews insisted that before a Gentile could become a Christian, they must become first a Jew, and then they were to become a Christian. And this was one of the things that Paul uh, wrestled with the early church on, and when you read his letters, um, and he, uh, many times over, he is talking with regard to the ceremonial laws and some of these traditions that were no longer binding on uh, God's people. And uh, so when we think of Paul, when we think of Paul, we think of Paul as also an author, don't we? Uh, how many of the 27 books of the New Testament did Paul author? Someone may say 13, but I, I would suggest it's 14. That's exactly right. It is 14. We include the book of Hebrews. Sometimes there's a little bit of a debate as to whether Paul wrote that, but in my mind, there is no doubt about it. He wrote 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And what were some of those letters? What were some of those letters? We've got a, uh, we've got a question we're going to ask Richard here in just a minute, a couple of questions. So we're going get, to uh, get you positioned and ready here. With, have you got a microphone, Richard? Gonna make sure you, you've got a big, loud voice. We've got a couple of questions for you regarding Paul. What were some of the letters Paul wrote? Do you remember? You know, in my mind, I start from the very beginning. You know, when I was a boy, we learned a song and we memorized the books of the New Testament. I won't sing it to you because I want to keep you here for this morning. But Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Titus, <laughs> Philemon, and Hebrews. There it is. Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. <clears throat> I'm going to check my notes. Yes, got them right. Very good. So those are the books, letters that Paul actually wrote. Richard, question, a couple of questions for you. When you read, and, and you, you're a student of the Word of God, what characterizes, what characterized the letters of Paul? What, char what are some of the characteristics of the letters of Paul that, uh, that come to your mind? Well, I think in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he had two themes in mind. His first theme was for reproof and correction to those uh, who had backslid and were introducing practices into the church at Corinth that were corrupting the gospel. And I think his second point was for instruction and encouragement in those areas that had risen that were confusing in the church, such as marriage, the use of food offered to idols, uh, and some things like that. But I think Paul's main point through not only the first and second Corinthians, but all his epistles, 
that he had written. I think his main focus was on Christ Jesus and him risen. That's what Paul had focused on through all his letters. Well, you answered my second question. What was, what was the core of Paul's message? And it was Christ and him crucified, wasn't it? Amen. Yeah. The reference to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Um, Paul's letters included doctrinal teaching, practical applications of the same. His letters provided counsel, encouragement, admonition, and reproof uh, with regard to issues surrounding personal faith relationships and church life. Um, and let me ask this question, because we, th- we think about Paul as, as writing the letters as well, and we writing those letters, and we think of Paul as being a missionary. Was Paul a successful missionary? Paul was an extremely successful... Was he a busy missionary? Uh, he was a busy missionary. He went on three separate missionary journeys, and each one extended the gospel further beyond the borders, uh, outside the borders of Israel. Uh, Paul was a very successful missionary. Paul preached the gospel from Syria through Turkey and Greece, and then into Italy, over there to Rome. Within, uh, within a decade, Paul established churches in four provinces in the Roman Empire. And you got to understand, Rome was a ruling empire, so their, their territory expanded over a lot of uh, the part of that region back then. So he established churches in those four provinces of the Roman Empire. Now, with that background, we're going to go right into our lesson. on Sun- We're going to go right into Sunday's lesson, Let's talk a little bit here about Greeks and Jews. Greeks and Jews. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and, uh, through 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24 and uh, I have also a, another question related to this, to these verses, and I'm going to be coming to you, Mike, in just a little bit. And so I hope you've got a microphone. Uh, we're going to come to you in just a few moments. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 22 to 24. Uh, the Bible says, "For Jews, this is Paul writing. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified." And notice how each of these two groups responded. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So by speaking, Paul, by speaking of both Jews and Greeks, Paul designated the most prominent classes of his day. You had the Jews and you had the Greeks. The Jews were often impressed with the supernatural. And why would you think that would be? Well, if, they go, if you go back to their earliest history, they were freed from, uh, from Egyptian slavery and bondage by the hand of God. It was a miracle that they were freed. When you think about their wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, did God work miracles to sustain them and to keep them? Certainly he did. When you think about them going into the promised land, did God work miracles to, in order for them to rout out the enemy and to establish themselves in that particular area? Yes, he did. God worked miracles throughout the, um, the history of Israel. And so this led the Jews to become impressed with the supernatural. Uh, they were looking to miracles and wonders and signs, uh, while the Greeks, they were impressed by intelligence and reason. But 
the preaching of the cross, according to what Paul wrote here, the preaching of the cross was a stumbling block or the trigger of a trap. That's what a stumbling block is. The trigger of a trap. You, st you stand on that trigger, it sets the trap off, the person's trapped. And so that's the stumbling block. It's a trigger of a trap. The preaching of the cross to the Jews was a stumbling block. For them, the idea of the Messiah, the King, the one who was going to set them free from the Roman yoke, being crucified was, was, uh, was, was not right in their thinking, you see. They didn't understand it. They, to them, it was extremely offensive. The preaching of the cross to the Greeks, it was madness. The idea that someone who was destined to save the world would be crucified was sheer nonsense to them. However, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, those who see God's plan of salvation as being wise and receive it, to them it's what? The power of God. When they understand what the cross really means, they understand it brings power into the life to, to enable them to love and to move away from a life of selfishness, you see. To them, it's the power of God. And so, we see in this particular, uh, this, these particular verses, you've got a different response uh, from different groups of people to the gospel. And here's the, here's the question, Mike. It's evident that people relate to truth in different ways. The question is, what can we learn that will help us in our witnessing experience from what Paul wrote here. We should start with those things that people can identify with and prayerfully lead the discussion or relationship towards talking about Jesus. Okay, all right. How can we do that in a practical way? How can you do that in a practical way? Someone suggested using what they call the onion approach, um, where you peel back the layers in a conversation. You get to the heart of the issue, which is, which is a spiritual conversation. In your relationships and in your friendships, um, how, do you, how do you do that? Generally, if you're just meeting someone for the first time, you don't really have much of a relationship, what type of conversation do you normally have with them? Do you talk about philosophical, spiritual things initially? Not initially, not initially. It does depend on the person. It really does depend on the person. Uh, but you normally talk about the weather. <laughs> it's normally that, well, it's hot today. And then, uh, and then you could lead the conversation from it being hot. Well, thinking, speaking of hot weather, uh, the political season is, is, uh, is, is heating up a little bit, isn't it? And uh, what do you see the issues are uh, coming up in this election? And then you, can, uh, then you can hear from them, and then you start talking a little philosophical, perhaps. And uh, is it guns? Is it going to be national security? Then you can ask the question, do you think that after settling these issues, we're really all going to be very safe at all anyway? Are things going to improve? Are things going to get better? Will evil always exist? And then you could ask the question, and it's always nice to ask before you give your opinion, opinion, do you mind me sharing with you how I see things? And if the person gives you permission, then you can share. Don't just run off at the mouth, but share intentionally and purposefully. Share what you think. Share what you understand uh, the Bible teaches and the Bible says. And so, from uh, starting out talking about the weather being hot recently, moving to political discussion, moving to philosophical discussions, it's possible you could even reach a spiritual discussion. Now, that doesn't always happen in one conversation. If you're, if you're really good, it probably can, but, um, but it takes time as you develop those relationships with individuals, doesn't it? But the goal is ultimately to do what? Bring, them to, bring an individual to the knowledge of your best friend, who is Jesus Christ, right? Bringing him a knowledge of them a knowledge of Jesus, leading them to a saving relationship with Jesus. This, this effort is actually an art. It's an art, an art that requires three Ps, prayer, 
patience and perseverance. Prayer, patience and perseverance. When Paul preached to the Jews, he based his sermons on the history of Israel. And uh, he linked Christ to King David, and then he emphasized the Old Testament prophecies that the Israelites were familiar with, pointing, uh, that were all pointing to Christ, and then he uh, foretold his, that were foretelling his death and resurrection. Go with me to Acts chapter 13, if you'd be so kind. Let's just take a look here. I've got a couple of uh, chapters we're going to read, or a couple of verses here. Um, Acts 7, someone else has Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. That's Robert. Okay, thanks, Robert. We're going to come over to you in just a moment. But let's first look at Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 41. Um, we're going to read this together because it's important. I want you to notice how Paul develops his conversation with the Jews. Uh, first, uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 41. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the king of, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a saviour, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel... And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus and it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead and no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried at his father's and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes in just, is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which will by no means believe, you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you but one were to declare it to you. I was about to continue reading, but there it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a long read, I know, but did you catch the transition? Started where everyone was familiar, 
They understand when we read this for the first time, we may get a little confused. But as we study Israelite history, we become, and become more familiar with it. The Jews appreciated what Paul was saying. They, uh, they respected his knowledge of, the his, of history. But Paul's purpose was to lead them to what? To Jesus, that his death on the cross and his resurrection were a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And he led them from one step to the next. Did you notice that? Is there something you and I can learn from how Paul relates to individuals in leading them to the truth? Surely we can. Sometimes we like to just jump on folk and just tell them everything there is from the very get-go. But it pays to just back up a little bit sometimes and just wait and to see where a person's at and then lead them step by step, point by point, to an understanding of God's special truth for these days. Step by step, point by point. That was Paul's, um, Paul's um, method in, in sharing Jesus. Now, but when Paul preached the gospel, uh, gospel to the Gentiles, he talked about God as created, the entry of sin and salvation. Uh, we're going to have Robert go ahead and read for us Acts 17, 22 to 31. Another little lengthy passage, but you'll see how Paul connects dots for the Gentiles. Let's take a look at that. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive, I perceive that you are in all things very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the faith of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own, your own poets have said, for we are also of his offspring. Therefore, since we are of the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance for this to all by raising him from the dead. Very good. Thank you, Robert. Excellent. Did you notice how Paul dealt differently with the Gentiles? In this case, these, the Greeks, these philosophers there on Mars Hill. Where did he start? He started with their, the inscriptions on some of their uh, idols. And the, some of the inscriptions read, to the unknown God. And from there, Paul built his case and revealed to them that the unknown God that they thought was unknown is actually the Creator. And the Creator came in human flesh and he died for the sins of the world and he rose again and one day he's going to judge the world. Notice Paul was trying to stir their, get their attention and when you start talking judgment, that's certainly going to get someone's attention, isn't it? Certainly is, yeah. But he was trying to get their attention, showing them that the gods that they were worshipping is actually the creator God. The, the unknown God that they had referenced, the one they didn't know was the creator God and he alone is worthy of worship, not these things made of gold and silver and so forth. And so Paul started where the people were, and he sought to lead them to Jesus. And you notice when Paul was speaking, now some folk in, in chapter 17, 
some folk didn't accept what Paul said. Hey, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead. Well, well, let's talk about that later. But further down, a few verses down, some people did believe and they did accept Jesus because of what Paul shared. And uh, there are things that we can learn from this, there's no doubt. But always start where people are, leading them to Jesus, step by step, point by point, and relying upon the convincing power of truth and the Holy Spirit. You don't need, and I don't need to argue, because truth will stand on its own two feet, and the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to a person's heart. Question for us today, and when, we, when I read this, question for us, a couple of questions for us might be, what, uh, what is our faith based on? What reasons do we have for believing like we do? Because you've got to believe to a purpose, right? You've got to believe, you, you believe for a particular reason. And Paul, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, was trying to establish a good reason for them to base their faith in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Creator of, heavens, of the heavens and the earth. Well, there's lots we, more we could talk about, but uh, let's go over to Monday's lesson. Let's continue looking at Paul's uh, approach in sharing the gospel. <clears throat> Here's a question that I'd like to ask you, and I've asked, the, uh, asked you this before. How do you explain to a fish that is accustomed to being wet what dry is? How do you, well, how do you explain anything to a fish, right? But um, how do you explain to a fish that is only accustomed to wet what dry is? A fish has no comparison. A fish has no, uh, no point of reference, now, when you're dealing with two unequal worlds, how do you communicate? Uh, someone suggested that awareness is largely the product of comparison. When you're traveling somewhere and you come back home and you want to tell people what you've experienced and they may not fully understand exactly what you might be referring to, you would say something to the extent, you know how we here do this, this and this, well over there they do this, this and this. Well, you know how here we have this, well, over there they have this. We, we use a point of reference, a comparison to help a person understand the things that we've experienced. You use what is familiar to, what, to those you're talking to, to explain to them something unfamiliar. Uh, Jesus used comparisons to explain the kingdom of God to people. We know those to be parables. He spoke in parables. Paul, he also employed this method to illustrate what the follower of Jesus looks like. Paul used two main metaphors when writing in his letters. The two main metaphors were the athlete in the games and also the Roman soldier. I want to just focus a little bit on the athlete for a moment. In, in, the, in Greek times, the games were held in honor of uh, the god Zeus. And the first Olympics, the traditional date for the first Olympics was 776 BC. They continued to be celebrated uh, when Greece came under the rule of the, of the Roman Empire, until Theodosius I, uh, when he suppressed the games in 394 AD. So the games were held from the earliest times under Greek rule through right up to the time when uh, the Romans ruled uh, during even Paul's day and age. So he was accustomed to the games. It was something everyone talked about, kind of like here, we talk about baseball and we talk about football, right? those types of things. No one talks about cricket, and I don't know why, but um, we talk about different things, right? And uh, so during the celebration of the Games, it was, it's interesting that it was an Olympic truce was enacted. And it was called the Olympic truce, so that athletes could travel from their countries to the Games safely. Uh, the prizes for the victor were olive leaf wreaths or crowns. And the Games were also used to help spread Hellenistic culture throughout the Mediterranean. The statue of Zeus at the Olympics was counted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, what were some of the main sporting events at the Olympics? 
Well, today, they, every year, or every four years, it seems like they're adding another game. Back there, it was very simple. The main sporting event was running. That's right. The main sporting event was running, uh, although more elements were added over the years. You had boxing, it was added, and apparently there was, there was just with, it was just with fists. And, uh, then they, they, well, and then they started using hard leather and metal, and uh, some would resort to just using soft leather, which it seems is a little, uh, a little more gentler. And Paul, familiar with all these games, drew on the games to make profound spiritual points. I want to share one of those with you, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And we'll read this together. There are other references, and you can write them down. 1 Timothy 6, 12, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Paul talks about running the race with patience um, and uh, fighting the good fight. Uh, let's, uh, let's read, though, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. And someone has 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Is that you, Richard? I think you've got that. We'll come to you in just a moment, okay? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Notice what Paul wrote. He said, do, not, do you not know that those who do what? Run in a race, all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Obtain what? The prize. He'll go on to explain. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, thus not with uncertainty, thus I what? Fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified or cast away." What was the profound spiritual truth Paul is writing? He's taking the illustration of athletes who are running the sprint, the race, who are, uh, who are boxing, even wrestling, and he draws a spiritual comparison and he says, you know, as they run, you ought to run and not give up. As they reach for the prize, which is just an olive leaf wreath or a crown, uh, and it's perishable, you run for the prize which is imperishable, eternal. And look, just as those athletes discipline their bodies, and he uses the word temperance, and it's not a word we use here uh, an awful lot today, but temperance just simply means, I don't want to say moderation in all things, that's not the case. Temperance means uh, um, a, a, a moving or putting away of those things out of your life that are unhealthy for your body and using judiciously or moderately those things which are good. Uh, that's what temperance is. Abstaining from those things that are harmful, using judiciously uh, in moderation those things that are good. He encourages the Christian also to be temperate. Look, if they do it just for a, a, a corruptible crown, how much more should you do? Keep your body under subjection, have self-discipline, take care of your body when you are seeking to receive eternal life. Now, he's not saying you can do that to earn eternal life. He's saying as participants of salvation, those who've received salvation, you ought to keep your body under subjection. You ought to practice temperance. And uh, so he draws this illustration, spiritual comparison, uh, from the athletes of the day, those involved in the Olympics. Um, Paul also referred to the Roman soldiers. Rome ruled the world in the day of, days of Paul. Roman soldiers were made up of various ethnic and national groups. Soldiers pledged loyalty to the emperor who promised rewards at the end of their term of service. Paul, I'm going to give you a couple other references and you can write them down. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Remember, Paul talks, takes the armor that is on a Roman soldier and he uses those pieces of armor to describe or as illustrations of, of the pieces of spiritual armor that the Christian has. The shield of faith, 
the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, running the race, uh, fighting the good fight, rather. Uh, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Thanks, Richard. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. See there, if you see there the, the fight, the struggle, the warfare, it talks about the weapons of our warfare are not material things, but they're spiritual, you see, bringing everything into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, these are strategies and things uh, talk with regard to soldiers and war and weaponry and those types of things. He uses those, those illustrations, he uses those as illustrations to describe uh, the battle we fight, uh, in the spiritual battle we fight. In the walk uh, that we walk as Christians, it can be a fight, it can be a battle. Faith is a fight because we war against self and sin and Satan. Faith can be a race because it requires stamina and perseverance. Richard, what metaphor for you describes your experience and why? Well, I experience it as warfare. I'm told to put on the full armor of God every morning when I arise, and we go out and we're told that we do battle with Satan and his minions. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we get wounded. Sure. When we get wounded, we go back into Christ for the healing, but it's a constant battle and struggle in our lives, so I equate it more uh, to a warfare than an athletic competition. Okay, fair enough. And some of us might refer to it as an athletic competition. We're, we're persevering, we're trying to be patient. And, uh, but these are the metaphors Paul uses to describe our experience uh, and our walk with the Lord. Well, let's go over to Tuesday's lesson and let's talk about Paul and the law. We're talking about his message, his mission and his message. What was Paul's view of the law? Uh, in the English translations of Paul's letters, the word law is used about 130 times. Paul put forth great effort in his writings to show that the law, that when he used the word law, it carried several meanings. In his writings, he used the word law broadly in reference to rules for religious ceremonies, uh, civil law, health laws, and even purification law. He talked about in 1 Corinthians 9.9, the law of Moses, as well as in Romans 7.25, the law of God. He declared that the law is holy, just, and good. While the average Jew would not misunderstand what law Paul was referring to it because they would read the context, sometimes it's not so easy for us. Sometimes people, and many times, I shouldn't say not sometimes, but many people, even preachers and Christians of other faith have confused Paul's uh, reference to law and have suggested that when he says we are, uh, that a certain law has been done away with, they're referencing the moral law, the Ten Commandments. But that certainly can't be the case because he declared them to be holy, just, and good. And so there's sometimes confusion with regards to, to the, the law that Paul refers to. But if we study and we read it in its context and understand that there is more than just one law in the Scriptures, we'll better understand what Paul is referring to. I want to help us with this. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. I want you to notice this. I'm going to do a little quick runaround here in the Scriptures. I want to show you something that I think will be helpful and will help us avoid confusion on this particular subject. What law? Because you've had... You've heard it before and someone, some people have even said it to you or asked you and have asked me or suggested it to me that the law, wasn't the law done away with at the cross? Is the law of God no longer valid? Hasn't it been obliterated? No longer ob we're not no longer obligated to it. Second Kings chapter 21 verse 8, I want you to notice, 
And I will not make the feet of Israel, God is speaking, I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Did you notice that? Did you notice two, two dis the distinction between two laws? You'll do all that I have commanded you and then you'll also do all that who commanded you? Moses commanded you. So right here, you'll notice that God commanded some things and Moses commanded some things. God gave a law and Moses gave a law. And we understand that what Moses gave was also from God, but you see that there's a distinction right here. The Bible makes it clear that there are two branches of law. There is the moral law, that is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, written on tables of stone. But then also you have the ceremonial law, which deals with sacrifices and so on. And there's a huge difference between the two. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm, we're going to be in Deuteronomy, look at two uh, separate sections of Scripture here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and let's read verses 1 through 5, uh, you, uh, because people often say you don't have to worry because the law is being done away with. But what law has been done away with? There, has a, there is a law that has been done away with, and we're going to see which one that is. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Notice, at that time, the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tables of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the, or the tablets the words that were spoken or on the first tablets which you broke and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tables of stone like the first, went up to the mountain having the two tables in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing the Ten Commandments which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire, in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets where? In the ark which I had made, and they, there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. So there are certain things that we can learn when we read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. We notice that God wrote this law. He wrote it with His finger, if you read Exodus 31, verse 18. He was written with His finger. It's called uh, the Ten Commandments. It was written on stone and it was put inside the ark. Now, let's look at this, the ceremonial law, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 26. Deuteronomy 20, sorry, 31, 24 to 26. And we're going to get to Colossians 2, verse 14. Who has that? Right over here, that's James. Okay, Colossians 2, 14, we're going to come to you in just a moment. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 to 26. Notice the writing of Moses. He says, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book when they were finished that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law, take this book of the law and do what? And put it in beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you. So do you notice this was a law that was written by who? Moses, and it was written on, on tables of stone? In a book. And where was the book placed? In the side of the ark. So you see a dis distinction between these two particular laws you see. And if you go on to read in the Scriptures, the, uh, these, these laws were known as ordinances. They were Moses' laws that were contained in altar, uh, altars, offerings, and annual feasts and new moons, including meat and drink offerings and ceremonial Sabbath days, such as, for example, the Feast of Trumpets, etc. So the question is, which law was done away with? Which law was done away with? Yeah, the second one. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and then we're going to read Colossians 2, verse 14 in just a moment. 
Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the what? The law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What was abolished? The law contained in ordinances. And then Colossians 2, verse 14. Thanks so much, James. We appreciate it. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has na- uh, taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, James, which law was done away with? The ceremonial law. That's right. Yeah, so, it was the ceremonial law, right? The ceremonial law. Can the eternal law of God be abrogated, changed, modified, done away with? Because if that were the case, you'd have to do a couple of things. You'd have to alter the, the character of God because the law of God is, the, the moral law of God is a reflection of His character. And you'd have to, you'd have to change the, uh, the, um, the foundation. You'd be altering and changing the foundation of God's throne and His government. And you just can't do that, you see. If the law could have been done away with and abolished, then frankly, Jesus would not have needed to have died on Calvary's cross. And that's what Paul means when he wrote in Romans 3, verse 31, when he said, faith establishes the law. It doesn't do away with the law, you see. All ten of God's commandments are valid today and are to be kept by His grace. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments, you see. It's that simple. Paul didn't do away with God's Ten Commandment law. He, uh, he exalted and, uh, and, and established it. As a matter of fact, the law of God, he said, is, uh, is to highlight what sin is and is to drive us to Jesus. Drive us to Jesus, who is the only one who can wash away our sins. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson and let's talk about the cross and the resurrection because that's where the law of God points, directs us to Jesus. First Corinthians uh, 2 and verse 2. Let's jump over there. And someone's got Romans chapter 4, verse 25, and I have a couple of questions for that person. Who's got Romans 4, 25? Pam, that's right, right over here. Okay. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 first, and let's just take a look here at what Paul wrote. We referenced it earlier on in our class, but let's take a look and read it for ourselves. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. The Bible says, for I determined, this is Paul writing, I determined not to know anything among you except who? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's exactly right. Central to Paul's teachings and practice was the cross of Jesus. The subject of the cross, however, was not taught in a vacuum. Paul taught that the law gives a knowledge of sin. And the law is the mechanism that drives us to the person of Jesus Christ, the only one who can wash away our sins. First John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins, you see. At the cross, we experience repentance and the assurance of sins forgiven, and yet there is more. And Paul wrote about that in Romans 4 verse 25, Pam. Thank you so much. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification? Pam, so according to this verse, according to this verse, what else is equally important to our salvation? The resurrection of Jesus. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. What is more important, your brain or your heart to keep you alive? Your heart. Your heart. You've heard that question before. (laughs) I I didn't trick you. Very good, yeah. Both are essentially essential to us living. The cross of Calvary and the resurrection, both are equally important to our salvation. Now, let me ask you, Pam, why is the resurrection of Jesus important? 
to our salvation. Well, because without it, Christ would not have completed our redemption. Sure. He'd be in the grave still. He'd be in the grave. He'd be in the grave still. But he rose again yeah. for our justification, as he, as he wrote in Romans 4.25, and, uh, and that we might experience reconciliation with God and experience a new life in Christ. The resurrected Christ, that brings, Christ brings that power into our lives that we might live for Him, not just be dead to sin, but that we might be alive to Jesus and that we might live for Him. The resurrection assures us that what Christ has done has been approved by the Father and that God's purposes are being accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection is very important. As a matter of fact, it's, very, it's a very central teaching uh, in the Bible and especially the writings of Paul. My question for you here today regarding the resurrection of Jesus is what is the pur purpose of the resurrection of the righteous when Jesus comes back? If when a person dies, someone who is saved dies, they go immediately to heaven. What's the purpose of it? There is no, there is no reason for it. The teaching of the immortality of the soul which is seen in reincarnation, praying to saints, eternally burning hell, and many New Age practices, undermines two main teachings in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the just. That's what the immortality of the soul undermines, you see. There would be no need for Jesus to come back. Jesus said, I'm coming back for who? For you and for me. Then there's no need if we're already there. And it also, this teaching undermines the resurrection because when Jesus comes back, there are saints that are in their dusty beds and he's going to do what? It's going to raise them up. They'll dust themselves off. They come up out of that grave with brand new bodies and uh, that both the, those who are raised and those who are alive will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall they ever be with the Lord. You can be pretty sure, you can be pretty sure that the devil is the perpetrator of the lie of the immortality of the soul. Well, we get to Thursday's lesson and, uh, and really the title of the lesson is about getting along. And... Um, when we read the story of Paul and Barnabas there in Acts chapter 15, we realize that even though they were working together to win souls to Christ, they had a difference of opinion. And that's uh, always the challenge when, uh, when we work together. There's, there's benefits to working together, aren't there? As a matter of fact, a church ministry is team ministry. Jesus partnered up the disciples when he sent the 12 out. And then when he sent the 70 out in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 1, he sent the 70 out two by two. And in Acts chapter 11, uh, the, Paul and Barnabas and the church in, churches uh, worked together to provide goods and services to Jerusalem where there was going to be a famine. So there's benefits to, to uh, teamwork. There's no doubt about that. Support and encouragement are given. More can be accomplished for the Lord, but also challenges come when we work together as a team. Uh, Paul and Barnabas realized this, and you can read it in Acts 15 verses 38 to 41, uh, they uh, had a different opinion with regard to one John Mark. John Mark at one stage had become uh, timid and um, a little afraid, discouraged, and he abandoned Paul and Barnabas in, uh, at a particular, on a particular mission. And so when Barnabas said, hey, let's invite him back, or invite him back, what did Paul say? No way, Jose, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And there was a little contention in so much that Paul and Barnabas went in different directions, you see. And, uh, and Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took to himself Silas. And interestingly enough, the work spread and it grew. There are several challenges that come with team ministry. I'll just list these off because time is, is up. Team ministry teaches that even completely committed Christians may experience difficult, difficulty and heart heartaches as they attempt to work for Christ. Secondly, there is a problem of placing the wrong person in the wrong position. 
Thirdly, ministry is purely voluntary, meaning that at the slightest provocation, some people can and do quit. And fourthly, because each person carries a responsibility, if one person forgets or reneges on his or her duty, it can hinder the work or provide added stress to those faithful uh, parties. The solution to the challenge of teamwork is in accepting your God-given place in the church and doing what God has given you to do, as Paul and others exemplified in their ministry. Now, eventually, John Mark redeemed himself in the eyes of Paul, and Paul exhibited forgiveness and understanding in so much that later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he referred to John Mark as a fellow laborer. And so uh, there's always restitution when we, when we consider the gospel. The message and ministry of Paul continues to provide inspiration and encouragement to people everywhere. While none of us can be Paul because Paul was just Paul, you can be you. And you, God, can, you, God can use you in wonderful ways in bringing Jesus and his truth to others. God has equipped you with varying tools that you can use in his service. Know what those tools are and employ them in the building up of the work of God. Is that what you want to do? Because that's what I want to do. I want to be used of God to continue to build up God's work here on earth in anticipation of his soon return. I hope that's your prayer. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.